Croeso i'r Cymrodorion. Thank you for listening to this Cymrodorion podcast. This is the 2020 June Griffith Memorial Lecture held in association with the Montgomeryshire Society. Our speaker is Dr. Mererid Pugh Davis, Associate Professor and Head of German at University College London. The subject of her talk, which was co-authored with Angharad Pugh Davis, her sister, is the novelist, their grandmother, Elena Pugh Morgan, Rethinking Modernism. We hope you enjoy. Good evening, and thank you, first of all, for your very kind welcome and the introduction. I felt tremendously honoured and touched by the kind invitation to speak this evening. My grandmother, about whom I'm going to speak, may, I believe, I believe she was, a lifetime member of both the Honourable Society of Cymrodorion and the Montgomeryshire Society, as certainly was my late mother, Catherine Pugh Davis, about whom you'll also hear a little bit more later. These societies meant something to them something which today I think we still value and which we still need, a sense of intellectual, cultural and ethical connectedness across borders, institutions, interests and generations. More about that later too. In fact, just about the first thing my mother said when I announced that I was off to London to seek my fortune was, <laughs> Now, you make sure you go to the Camrodorion. It's probably the last thing she said when I set off as well. Sadly for me, unfortunately, I'm not able to attend these lectures as often as I would like to, uh, due to looking after a tiny representative of the next generation of the Mon- Montgomeryshire Society. But given this history particularly, I'm delighted to be here this evening and to recall my mother, from whom I learned most of what I know about my grandmother, as well, as co- of course, as my grandmother herself. At this point, I would also like to credit my sister, Dr. Angharad Pio-Davis of Swansea University, with whom I jointly researched and compiled a good deal of the content which is to follow, and who's responsible for many of the wonderful slides. The ones Angharad made are the wonderful ones, the other ones are my ones. Unfortunately, Angharad can't be here this evening, but I would like to acknowledge and thank her very warmly at this point. As I'm going to argue later, despite the significant, critical and popular acclaim Elena Pugh Morgan's pioneering work received in its day, more recently it's been neglected by posterity. Although I do believe the changes in the air, of which this lecture, I'm pleased to say, forms a part. Partly as a result of this marginalisation in literary history, The work of Elena Pio Morgan is not much known outside Wales and the Welsh-speaking world, and certainly to my knowledge, nothing substantial has ever been published about it in English. I am, therefore, especially excited to be part of bringing Elena Pio Morgan's work now to a new readership. And at the same time, I'm also looking forward to hearing from you um, if you have any more information and insights about my grandmother's life, her times, her habitat, because there is so much that I don't know about it. In this lecture, I'll begin by outlining Elena Pio Morgan's biography, her literary career, and her key works. 
and then offer some thoughts as to why, in my view, she was a genuinely groundbreaking writer who spoke in extraordinary prescient ways to issues which, even today, are too often silenced. In conclusion, I will come back to the latter part of my lecture's title, Rethinking Modernism. Now, what do I mean by that? Why does modernism re need rethinking anyway? And what does it have to do with Elena P. Morgan? And why does it matter for our understanding today of literature, what it is and what it does? So, to begin with the biography. My grandmother was born in Colmen, Mirionethshire, in 1900. She was raised in Isluin, that's the house you see there on the slide, the manse of Bethesda Congregationist Chapel, Corwen, where her father, Lewis Davis, was minister. That's the chapel itself. It's no longer a place of worship. It's now been converted into a home. And following her marriage, she lived at Anedwen for much of the rest of her life. This is also in Corwen. That's before and after. It actually isn't much changed, except the people who live there presently um, have let the, um, the front garden um, become very leafy, but it's actually, it is actually very much unchanged from the way it looked in my grandmother's day. Um, she lived there until a severe illness in her later years meant that she, by then a widow, moved to live with her daughter Catherine and her family, so that's me and my mother and the rest of us, in Shrewsbury, where she died in 1973. Um, so this is Elena with her parents, um, Lewis Davis and Kate Davis. As we've already heard, also in her later years, Elena, when her, when her health allowed, spent long periods of time at Victoria House in Llanberg Carenion in Montgomeryshire, the home of her late husband's brother and sister, Rob and Catherine Morgan. I was a tiny child myself at that time, at the time when Elena spent a lot of time in Llanberg Carenion, and indeed I barely remember my grandmother at all. But some of my very earliest memories are of her in her bed sitting room in Shrewsbury, where she was always so kind and loving to Anharad and me, despite often being in great pain. And another one of my very early memories, I think, is of peering over the shop counter in Victoria House in Llanberg Carreño, the tailor's shop, which my uh, great aunt and uncle ran, and which later on my grandmother ran. Um, it's now the Banwy Bakery, for those of you who know Bridge Street in Llanfair. Elena kept the shop open when she could. I think this was on Wednesday afternoons, perhaps to coincide with market day, I wonder, to the delight of the older residents of the area in particular. Um, farming people from miles and miles around would make a special trip to Victoria House when it was open, because it was the only shop that still stocked the good stuff. It was, they came for the real old school woolens, the flannel shirts, the flannel pyjamas. And needless to say, later on, when grandad shirts and waistcoats and the like came back into fashion, and Harad and I, as fashion forward teens, took great pleasure in repurposing the rest of that stock. <laughs> but anyway, to return to Elena Pugh Davis, as she was uh, called before, she before her marriage. She had a very religious upbringing, um, which is not surprising for the daughter of a minister of religion in those days. For example, she used to recall that periodically a fun fair would come to Corwen. 
As the minister's daughter, of course, it was considered unseemly for her to attend such a worldly event, and naturally she didn't attend it, but she was even reprimanded at home simply for looking over the wall into the field where it was held. <laughs> Nonetheless, it's very clear that Elena grew up in a very loving and cultured home, and her parents, Lewis and Kate Davis, were exceptionally caring and productive, protective parents. This was unsurprising because their infant son, Dewi Iwan, was, who was born two years before Elena, tragically had died as an infant and he's buried in the graveyard at Ingmail. Lewis Davis was an avid reader, especially of the Greek classics, and it's this reading that's likely to have been the inspiration for the name Elena, which was a highly unusual choice at that time. Lewis Davis was a bibliophile, a collector of books, and also an expert bookbinder, as was common amongst ministers of religion in those days. It's said that he spent his first ever salary on a beautiful set of bookcases, which had an honoured position in my, old in my own childhood home. But Lewis Davis had been raised in the most terrible poverty in rural Cardiganshire, in a tiny small holding called Penlawn Dwyth at the end of the Dark Lane near Beulah, Newcastle Emlyn. He was one of 12 children who were orphaned by tuberculosis when the eldest was just a 12-year-old girl. This little girl brought up her 11 younger siblings herself alone and on the parish. It's said that in later life she was quite a severe and strict person, but it's almost impossible, I think, for us today to imagine the hardships that she must have endured. So even though Elena herself never suffered the grinding poverty which is evoked so powerfully in her major literary works, she was certainly aware of its spectre in recent family history and that of many of her contemporaries. By contrast, Elena's mother, Kate Davis, had a different and comparatively far more comfortable upbringing on a farm called Brithdir at Meirdi near Corwen. She was descended from the Ellises of Llanbun through her father and from the Peel family of Rhiwgorth Trasunid through her mother. And it's from that Rhiwgorth ancestry that the traditional middle name Peel, handed down through the family, originates. Elena missed a great deal of her schooling due to poor health, and she never had the opportunity to complete her formal education, let alone go to college, something which was a source of great sadness to her. She never had a single Welsh lesson in school either when she did attend, and, astonishingly to my mind, given the linguistic richness and complexity of her writing, Elena always worried that her written Welsh was poor. Nonetheless, from childhood, she read extensively in both English and Welsh, and with her parents' support, gave herself a remarkable education. Elena Morgan was an exceptionally kind, modest, and shy person. She was married in 1931, a comparatively late age in those days, to John Morgan, who we see here, originally from Avoil in Montgomeryshire. John was over 25 years Elena's senior, but the happiness of, the happiness of their marriage and home were proverbial in Cornwall. 
John had led a colourful life before settling in Corwen. He'd served a tailor's apprenticeship in Manchester before moving to Glasgow and becoming an activist in the early labour movement of the turn of the century, which saw the founding of trade unions in the docks of so-called Red Clydeside. From then on, John was more or less a communist in all but name. After returning to Wales, he helped found the Emergent Labour Party of the time and even stood for election as a Labour MP, even though in those days, in rural Marionethshire, a candidate of that newfangled party would never have had any hope of being elected. Indeed, it seems likely to me that politics was the only area in which John and Elena Pimorga may have had any real disagreements, for Elena was an enthusiastic supporter of the equally newfangled Clyde Gennedly for Cymru, later renamed Clyde Cymru, in <coughs> its earliest days. By the time of his marriage, John Morgan owned, alongside his business partner William Davis, a successful tailors and outfitters in Corwen, known as Shop Treverwin. And what you see on the slide here is a contemporary advert from a seven, that was the local paper in Bala, which was a local town. Um, this is a local advert for Shop Treverwin and the summer sale now proceeding. So you see Davis Morgan and Davis Limited. Commerce House and Shriverwin Corwen. Um, this is the building in Corwen. For those of you who know Corwen, this is how it looks nowadays. It is, funnily enough, just like the tailors at Victoria House in Lambert Carreño. This former tailor's shop is also a cafe. It's, ca it's called Café Shriverwin, which I recommend warmly to you if you're ever in those parts. Um, a plaque now commemorates Elena Morgan on the exterior of the shop. That's, that's the plaque there. You see it a little bit better here. This was installed relatively recently, in the last 10 years or so. John Morgan, um, the tailor himself, was a prominent man in the local community, a secretary to Bethesda Chapel for many years, and likewise he was secretary to the Literature Committee of the National Eisteddfod, which was held in Corwen in 1919. He was also one of the moving spirits of the first ever Youth Air of National Eisteddfod held in Corwen Pavilion in 1929. And as my son and his friends at the London Welsh School, as well as my niece, nephews, and other young friends in London and Wales, are now moving into this um, final frenzy of aesthetic creativity and preparation in these last few weeks of late winter, I often think about how much we owe that visionary generation of volunteers. John and Elena had one child, my mother, Catherine Pumorga, after her marriage, Catherine Pugh Davis, in 1933, and here they are together. Catherine recalled a cultured and lively home where the writers and poets of the area would congregate regularly. Poets would often come and consult John on abstruse questions of strict meter poetry or Kenhamev, since even though he was not a prolific poet himself, he did have a masterly grasp, it is said, of that discipline's most difficult rules. Uh, it is said that one day a customer appeared at Shop Trevedwin wanting to buy something, and he found the shop packed to the rafters with poets hotly debating some delicate or controversial point of meter. 
rhyme and consonants, and nobody was interested in serving him or selling him any clothes or material. After a very long time, waiting politely at the counter to be served, uh, this um, hopeful customer asked whether it might not be best if he were to return at some more convenient time. Oh, yes, indeed, that would be a good idea. Thank you, replied John, quite missing the sarcasm and fully in the poetry zone. In fairness, I think, in the interest of um, historical fairness, I should add that my mother, Catherine, always said that this story couldn't possibly be true because her father was always unfailingly courteous to everyone. She said it simply didn't fit with what she knew of his character. However, more than one person has told me this story. <laughs> now, since this is the Montgomery Society, I am also going to put in another anecdote about the Morgans. And this is one on which, to my knowledge, no one has ever cast doubt about the Montgomerysha connection and John's equally literary and self-taught brother, Rob. Rob Morgan of Victoria House, Llanberg Carreño. Rob was a prolific and successful poet who won numerous eisteddfod chairs. He was the winner of a beautiful chair which is now in my home and here's another of his which is now at my sister's home in Swansea. Now, Rob was such a keen reader that he too spent his first paid packet, it is said, on bookshelves. I have these as well. But much worse, Rob would always read at table, ignoring his family and ignoring his dinner. One day, as a test, his sister replaced the bread and butter on his plate with a piece of leather while he was reading at table to see what would happen. What happened was, Rob ate the leather and didn't notice. <laughs> and those of you who know my son Oshan will know that Uncle Rob's spirit lives on. <laughs> Elena Morgan was a lifelong and devoted member of Capel Bethesda in Corwen. However, she was by no means an entirely conventional person. One friend and frequent visitor at her home, Anevwen, was the celebrated and controversial writer John Cooper Powys, um, 1872 to 1963. After many years in the US, in 1935, Powys settled in Corwen with his American partner, Phyllis Plater, even though his own wife was still living. He was also a self-professed anarchist, and all in all, it's hardly likely that many of the upstanding people of Corwen would have considered this couple respectable company. However, John and Elena played a great part in teaching Poets to read Welsh and enjoyed debating Welsh literature with him. Poets's novel, Owen Dindawa, of 1941, contains many references to the Welsh Mabinogi, and he wrote the following dedication in a copy he gave to my grandparents. To my master bard John Morgan from his respectful and affectionate pupil of Mabinog. And the Morgans were also friends with the poet John Redwood Anderson, 1883 to 1964, who had retired to the area. Again, as you see from the dedications in these books that Anderson gave to my grandparents. Elena Pio Morgan knew many prominent Welsh-speaking writers and intellectuals too. She was, for example, a friend of the historian and writer Jorwerth C. Pete, 1901-1982, founder, of course, and curator of the Museum of Welsh Life at St. Fagans. 
I'm told Yorweth Pete would sit in the kitchen at Anevwen and offer a close historical analysis of all the furniture. <laughs> and if anyone in later years, such as my undergraduate self, fresh from some exhibition or reading about Bauhaus or the like, would come home and criticise this sort of terribly old-fashioned furniture, dreaming of modern design, um, I would hear, well, Yorweth Pete said that was a fine example of a corner cupboard. <laughs> and that was that. As a girl, Elena corresponded with her cousin David Ellis of Pen Aved, who of course came to be known later, known to posterity, as the lost poet, Abartha Gothwyd, a tragic victim of the Great War. Later, she wrote letters to her friend, the novelist, the well-known novelist Moilona, um, that's the pseudonym of Elizabeth Mary Jones, 1877 to 1953. These two pioneering women writers kept each other company at the then male-dominated meetings of the prestigious Gorset the Bath, the Gorset of the Bards. And in June 1951, Moilona wrote in Welsh to Elena about such a forthcoming meeting. Well, are you coming to Aberystwyth on Wednesday? I very much hope that you are, or there will be no woman bard present but myself. Elena was also a friend of the writers Dudley Owen, 1906 to 1992, and E. Tegla Davis, 1880 to 1967, amongst others, and she also knew Kate Roberts, 1891 to 1985. And both Dudley Owen and Kate Roberts wrote memorial essays on Elena's death. However, Elena Morgan hosted others too at her home. She was known for offering hospitality to the homeless and the itinerant, and for her compassion and charity. Another connection in her life, which was to prove intellectually and creative especially significant, as I'll explain shortly, was with the roaming people who travelled North Wales at that time. And Elena knew and visited members of the Romany Abraham Wood family at Hame Daly, as they were known, as they passed through the area. And again, this might have seemed quite unusual for a middle-class chapel lady of her time. So, if in some senses Elena Morgan had a seemingly narrow upbringing and a geographically limited adult life, she was in no way narrow-minded or parochial. And it's likely that this openness to others, as well as her strong sense of duty and public responsibility, which led her to become a justice of the peace. It was in that role that her name appeared above the door of every licensed drinking establishment in Corwen and around, the basis of many a family joke in light of Elena's lifelong commitments to temperance. Dovke Owen recalled in her essay of 1973 on Elena's death, when I heard that she was in hospital in Gobowen, I was not in the least surprised to learn that her fellow patients there admired her courageous fight against illness and were amazed by her personality and infectious sense of fun, which raised the spirits of everyone around her. Now, the writing. At first, as John mentioned, Elena Morgan wrote for children. She published 16 short stories for children in popular magazines and anthologies, and her first full-length book, which you see here on this slide, published under her maiden name, Elena Pugh Davis, was for children too. 
This was the novel Agnelle Chamaïev, Angel of the Peace Ships of 1931, about the missionary John Williams. And another one of her novels for children, Tana Kaspech, Story of the Fiatruitrai Shadow of Achromwell Lucy Benfro, Below the Castle, a story from the days of the battles between Charles and Cromwell in Pembrokeshire, was awarded the prize for a novel for children at the National Eisteddfod at Llanelli in 1930, and it was published in 1936. In that same year, another of Elena Pio children's books, The Little Grey Cottage in the Woods, about a little girl and her relationship with the natural world, was awarded the same prize at the National Eisteddfod at Fishgard. However, this work wasn't published due to the war and an ensuing shortage of paper and resources. <coughs> but increasingly, too, in those years, Elena Pio Morgan wrote for adults. Her first novel for adults, Nancy Lovell, Hinangoviante and Sipsi, Nancy Lovell, an old gypsy's memoir, won a prize at the National Race Deathbot in Hollyhead in 1927 and was published in 1933. The success of this novel is demonstrated by the fact that it soon went into new editions, as you see from the slide, and indeed it's this work of Elena Pimorkans, which most recently has been republished in 2018 by Gwaz the Welsh Women's Press, in its classic series, and it's recently attracted attention as a result, and I think kick-started the new wave of interest which we're now seeing in Elena Pimorkan. This is the cover of that new edition with the print from the 1940s by John Pepps on the cover. On the cover. In this short novel, the protagonist, Nancy Lovell, the wise and experienced head of a North Welsh Romany family, in old age, writes a letter to her granddaughter and namesake, Nancy Wynne, who lives the privileged life of a young lady in a manor house. In this letter, Nancy Lovell, that isn't a spoiler, that's all explained at the start. In her letter, Nancy Lovell unfolds the dramatic and adventurous stories which led her both to leave behind her Romani origins and then return to it. And simultaneously then, the story of five generations of the Lovell family is recounted. I think there are many influences on this novel, but one of them, there is no doubt, is the, um, is the presence of the Romani people in Corwen and the surrounding area, and Elena Pio-Morgan's own personal knowledge of them. It's very interesting to note that many of the descriptions of Romani life in Nancy Lovell map very precisely with contemporary historical records of Romani life and customs in North Wales. For example, their custom of living in tents made out of blankets rather than caravans, their musicianships, their musicianship, matriarchal elements within the community, and very specific rituals surrounding death, mourning, or cleanliness. The novel is also peppered with examples of the Romani language, and it even includes a little goth glossary of some of that vocabulary, as you see here. Simultaneously, I think it's highly likely that Elena Pimorgan was inspired by the era's cultural and scholarly interest in Romani life, which had been fostered from the 19th century onwards by the work of popular authors like George Borrow and scholars and linguists who were fascinated by the language in question. 
Nancy Lover was soon followed by Elena Morgan's major, most mature and longest works. In 1936, the Nationalist Edwards Prize for Best Novel was awarded to Oisk Sidan, The Silk Gown, which you see here, and this work was published in 1939. Subsequently, a Greif, The Scar, won the East Edwards Prose Medal in Cardiff in 1938, and again was published soon after. This was only the second time ever that that medal had been awarded at all. Nowadays, of course, it's a fixture of the annual festival. And it's also noteworthy at that, at that, at that time, this medal was awarded once every three years only, rather than annually, for the best prose work of the entire past three years. So it was a rare accolade indeed. In addition, Elena Pio Morgan was the first woman to win this prize, and it was only in 1960 that it was finally awarded to another woman, despite the strong tradition of literary prose by Welsh women writers. Um, in 1960, the medal was awarded to Rhiannon Davis-Jones. The adjudicator in that prose medal competition, which was awarded to the SCAR, was the celebrated author and critic DJ Williams, and he wrote in his adjudication as follows. This novel was a true delight to read from beginning to end. Here, a past master is using his materials in a measured and purposeful way. The competition was anonymous, of course. The style is brilliant and rich in vocabulary and folk terms which should be made into a small reference work. I'm of the opinion that this work is a significant contribution to the world of the novel in Wales and that it will have a permanent place in our literature. Subsequently, The Star was published in 1943. Thus, the years 1931 to 43 marked Elena Pio Morgan's major creative period. Those years were also a key time in her personal life, for they coincided with her marriage in 1931 and the birth of her daughter in 1933. These circumstances no doubt contributed to Elena Pio Morgan's interest at that time in writing for children, especially for girls. And in these 12 years, the author was highly prolific, despite the demands and the joys of domestic life, a fact which makes her determination and commitment to writing all the more impressive. It's therefore all the more striking, too, that after the culmination, if you like, of that remarkable creative period, the publication of The Scar in 1943, Elena Pumorgan ceased to publish altogether, and she produced no more major works. In 1973, Dufke Owen recalled hoping, as she first read Elena Pumorgan's novels, that, and I quote, we had in her a woman writer who would develop into a George Eliot or a Charlotte Bronte. Whatever the reasons she stopped writing, it is our loss. Had she continued to write, we would have today a great author." End quote. And another celebrated contemporary, the author Kate Roberts, wrote at that time too that Elena P. Morgan's novels, quote, will hold an important position in the development of the Welsh novel. 
Most recent, more recently, the prominent critic and poet R.N. Jones, also known as Bobby Jones, wrote that Elena P. Morgan was Kate Roberts' most gifted peer, not only in claiming space for women in narrative fiction of the era, but more, import more importantly, in bringing femininity to bear in expanding our literary taste and visions. The contemporary author, Charlotte Clenay-Jones, has written at the premature end of Elena P. Morgan's writing career that this is, there is no doubt that this is a great loss or, in the words of critic Marianne Ellis, the loss to Welsh literature was tremendous. There are two principal reasons why Elena P. Morgan's career as a novelist came to an end, more or less before she turned 40. The first of these was her domestic situation. Elena cared for both her own parents, who lived with her at Anevwen in later life, and then her uncle, her aunt, and then John Morgan, who lived to the age of 80 but had poor health. She also took in, as was the custom, the unmarried elderly farmhand from her aunt and uncle's farm, a Brithdir, who had nowhere else to go when the farm was sold. And she cared and nursed each one of these relatives and friends devotedly. And soon after John Morgan's death, Elena herself developed a severe rheumatic condition and was very ill for her remaining years until 1973. Secondly, the premature end of Elena P. Morgan's literary career was related to her own modest nature, which is often referenced by people who knew her. And this modesty was compounded by a diffidence rooted in her lack of formal education. As Marianne Ellis has observed, Elena P. Morgan wrote mostly in response to commissions or estevod competitions, both of which provided her with a certain amount of support and structure. And so, despite the popularity of her works and praise at many estevodai by the likes of DJ Williams, she was much affected by negative criticism from the Welsh literary establishment as well. It was said at times that her work was too popular, that is, not highbrow, not modern enough. I think for a person of Elena P. Morgan's temperament, such verdicts were likely to be painful. Subsequently, and partly as a result, her comparatively small oeuvre has had little literary and critical posterity. And yet, as her contemporaries foresaw, Elena P. Morgan still has an important position in modern Welsh literary history, as is demonstrated by continued interest on the part of readers, listeners and viewers. Over the last two years, as I've been involved in launching the new edition of Nancy Lovell, I've been very moved to hear from readers about the formative importance of Morgan's work for them. Her novels have gone into numerous editions, including library editions, which suggests that they were widely read, and they were successfully serialised on the radio in the 1970s and 1980s. And at the end of the 20th century, The Silk Gown, The Scar and Nancy Lovell were all successfully filmed for S4C, bringing them to a new audience for whom new editions of the two longer novels were published too, by Gwaskomer. As you, as you see from this cover image here, under my mother's editorship. 
In my view, and I'm moving here from speaking as a granddaughter to putting more of a, a literary scholar kind of hat on, this very popularity has been central to the neglect of Elena Pimorkan by parts of the critical establishment. Traditionally, much high literary criticism has marginalised writing by women, especially when, like Elena Pimorkan's, it is for or about children when it concerns everyday and domestic life, or where it appears in short, ephemeral, or heaven forfend, popular forms, which often all amounts to the same thing. But to a more contemporary critical eye, such attributes are no longer a mark of supposed inferiority. Happily, the critical times are changing in Elena Pimorgan's favour. So, a contemporary critical eye can rediscover Elena Pimorgan's work today. And I'd like to go on now to say something about what I believe to be its most remarkable qualities. Her three novels for adults are all historical novels. They're all set in the 19th century or soon after. And they're set in mostly rural environments. Um, and their subject is primarily women's lives as well as the homes and communities in which they lived, um, described in particular in the two long novels, The Silk Gown and The Scar, in intense, exacting, realist detail. At the same time, The Scar portrays the dizzying pace of social and technological modernisation from around the end of the 19th century in very complex and ambivalent ways. Yet these two major novels, differently from what you might think, are anything but sentimental recollections about the supposed good old days. There's no nostalgia here at all, but shocking accounts of hardship and poverty. And the novels expose uncompromisingly the cruelty and hypocrisy of the society they depict. They cast light on the suffering of the weakest members of society, and they locate the roots of that suffering, not in individual failings, errors, or sinfulness, but in the structures and institutions of society itself. In that respect, even though we might not think so at first sight, these are, in a way, very political novels, albeit in a very deep sense rather than in any manifest sense. They show clearly, too, how hard lives and social injustices make individual people, in turn, hard and unjust. And there is no judgment here on the have-nots of society, but a sensitive, compassionate gaze. Interestingly too, and again, really very surprisingly, given what we know of Elena Pimorkan's life, these novels pay little or no attention to established religion. But reading The Silk Gown and The Scar today, what strikes me most powerfully of all is how contemporary they feel, despite their apparently distant historical settings and sometimes their language. Indeed, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that these novels are absolutely groundbreaking in their themes. The Silk Gown concerns at its core the sexual and emotional abuse of someone whom, today, we would describe as a destitute child with learning difficulties by a rich and powerful man whose secrets everyone keeps. And, I think just as controversially, 
The Scar narrates another tale of violent domestic abuse against a child, this time at the hands of her own mother. At the centre of these works, then, is a challenge to the abuse of power. Given that such topics as these are even today hedged about with difficulty and taboos, as current affairs tell us, it's hard to imagine just how controversial they would have been in their day. It really is extraordinary. I would argue, too, that the subtle, analytical ways in which the novel's foreground psychology is remarkably modern. They show, for example, how what we nowadays would call childhood trauma can mark a person for life and how that person can play through that trauma again and again and how it can be transmitted to intergenerationally. Reading The Silk Gown and The Scar today, it's also impossible to overlook what they have to say specifically about women. These works are highly innovative in naming and discussing themes which would have been central, of course, in many women's lives, and yet, again, too shocking to mention in the society and high literature of the day. Marriage breakdown, adultery, sexuality, pregnancy, childbirth, breastfeeding, unmarried motherhood, infant mortality, illness, violence, and the ailing, weak, and vulnerable body. Implicitly, too, the novel stressed the importance for women's well-being of financial independence, in that they all contain one striking female character who, in some way or another, has achieved a form of material independence, who has learned to read and write, and so learned to read, if you like, the ways of the world, and is able to live to a degree autonomously, even if this does sometimes mean outside of respectability, marriage, motherhood, or traditional feminine modesty. Notably, the emotional and material well-being of these unusual women is greater than that of any of the other female characters in the books. Thus, I would argue that the novels subtly draw clear connections, again, I think in very modern ways, between the emotional, the psychological, the societal, and the economic. There is also a stark critique here of traditional expectations placed on women to conform, to submit, and to suffer their lot. Unlike in many other celebrated novels, women's suffering is not idealized here. For example, The Scar is notable for the way in which its portrayal of a violently abusive mother explodes the powerful stereotype of femininity and maternity, a stereotype which Elena Pumorkan's contemporary, Virginia Woolf, critically called the angel in the house, a sweet, passive, and self-sacrificing woman. Instead, Elena Pumorkan offers a far more plausible, if disturbing and unparalleled, portrait of the ambivalence of maternity under harsh societal conditions. One might say something similar about the earlier, shorter, and apparently really very different, far less tragic novel, Nancy Lovell. While in many ways more conventional in the sense that it's an adventure story, it's a family romance, it's, um, it's a very different kind of story in many ways, this novel does nonetheless prefigure the others in its challenges to conventional feminine roles. And like the others, you could say that Nancy Lovell successfully kills the angel in the house, as Virginia Woolf put it. 
In this case, this is done in the portrayal of the protagonist, a completely independent woman, a narrator, who turns down respectable marriage and maternity once she discovers just how oppressive they can be. And this was 40 years before Betty Friedan's feminist classic, The Feminine Mystique of the 1960s. With sublime confidence, Nancy goes on to financial and emotional autonomy and to the practice of social power and indeed to the practice of writing. She's the author of her own story. In sum, I think too that this, it's this very uncovering of disturbing truths and crimes of really sort of scandalous material from everyday life and this rejection of conventional roles. And I think that all of this in Elena Pilmorgan's work must have contributed to its later obscurity. I think it was simply too far ahead of its time by almost 100 years. Now, finally, and as promised, what does all this have to do with rethinking modernism? This isn't very evident because traditionally, of course, people have thought of modernism essentially as a metropolitan tradition associated with such places as London, Paris, and Berlin, and with certain variants of, say, English, French, and German. On such a view, in almost every respect, Elena Pumorga, both in her life and in her very traditional, well, apparently traditional historical realist novels, was a world away from our modernist neighbour here in Bloomsbury, Virginia Woolf, and, her, and even her more urban contemporaries in Wales, such as Kate Foster Griffiths or Saunders Lewis. In some ways, Elena Pumorga seems to be writing to us from a completely different world and time. But in fact, you know, it seems to me that thinking about Virginia Woolf in particular, of all people, why Virginia Woolf, does offer us a key to understanding more about the work of Elena Pumorgan, um, about its place in our literary life, and in turn about modernism and literature more broadly. Curiously enough, one more little anecdote, I've nearly finished. When Waz Connor first contacted me in 2018 to discuss the possibility of a new edition of Nancy Lovell, um, as it happens, I was looking through Virginia Woolf's classic essay on women and fiction, A Room of One's Own, of 1929. I was preparing a class on it, and I was thinking in particular about the passages of the essay in which Woolf says that, to date, women haven't been able to write fiction because they've had no education, they couldn't go to Oxbridge, they had no audience, they had children, they had husbands, they had fathers, they had households, they, they, their fathers and their husbands and their households demanded their duty and obedience, they couldn't go about in society freely and in the world and so learn all about it. They had no money and, as Wolf famously says, they had no room of their own. So I was in the middle of reflecting about this when Guaz Connor emailed me about republishing my grandmother's work. And in that moment, I realized the most extraordinary thing, namely that at the very time, the very same time, Wolf was writing A Room of One's Own, presumably in the British Museum and in her private study, the unschooled, 
supposedly provincial, Elena Morgan, was sitting down somewhere in between her domestic duties, presumably at the kitchen table or at a corner of the shop counter, to write her novels, with none of the advantages of gender, class, money or education that Wolf would have said were necessary for her to do so. How do we explain this? Elena Morgan had her own advantages, albeit ones which might have not been very visible or legible, perhaps, to someone like Virginia Woolf. Not least of these advantages on which Elena Morgan could draw was the community of like-minded thinkers, artists and citizens, such as she had through the Gorseva Bay of and societies, indeed, like the Comrodorio. Elena Morgan went ahead and wrote anyway. And with one stroke, she proved Wolf wrong. What does this mean? It means a lot of things, but one of them is that Wolf's perception, acute as it was, I admire her work very much, it was simultaneously rather limited. That is, knowledge of Elena Morgan's work changes our view of Wolf, not for the worse necessarily, just changes it, and of the modernism with which her name is associated. The example of Elena Morgan shows us that the idea of modernism, as it's traditionally understood and expressed in works like A Room of One's Own, is also limited. Elena Morgan's writing, even as it seems to describe the past, is also a kind of modernism in the sense of being a powerful expression of the modern world, and so it changes what we think modernism might be. It tells us also that modernism isn't only to be found in London, Paris, or Berlin, or in the hands of the privileged and the formally educated, the avant-garde and the experimental. What this comparison between Wolf and Morgan tells us too is that the wellsprings of creativity are more plural, more diverse, and much more complex than canonical histories of literature might make you think. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You will find more of our podcasts on comradorian.org.